You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Most of the children lived on the street. Others had left school to work so their families might have enough food to eat. No matter where they came from, they worked from morning until night, regardless of the weather. Called Newsies, the children, who were mostly boys, sold newspapers on New York City's street corners. Whatever their backgrounds, the Newsies shared a system. After buying a stack of 100 papers from the publisher for 50 cents, they'd sell each paper for a penny. That meant they earned just 50 cents for a day's work, if they were lucky enough to sell all 100 papers. It's the equivalent of $16 a day in today's money. And in July of 1899, New Yorkers stopped getting their papers. The Newsies went on strike, and that put wealthy news giants like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer in a bind. The newspapers had bumped the price to 60 cents a bundle, cutting into the Newsies' minuscule profits. And when the kids found out that not only had the price gone up, but the bundles included fewer papers, they'd had enough. They tipped the New York Journal delivery wagon over and stole the papers. The next day, the Newsies met at Manhattan's City Hall Park and formed a union. From that day forward, they all vowed to never buy or sell a paper until Hearst and Pulitzer met their demands, returned the price for 100 papers back to 50 cents. 18-year-old Louis Belletti and 21-year-old David Simons were some of the older Newsies and became the initial leaders of the Newsboys' strike. The publishing giants ignored the Newsies. In their eyes, the problem would soon be resolved. They had enough money to hold, and the kids didn't. Furthermore, police broke up strikers, often by force. But the Newsies knew the system from the street level. They ambushed the journal wagons, stealing the papers so scabs couldn't sell them. They marched through the streets, tearing up papers and dousing unsympathetic newsstands with water, though never the women resellers. Belletti told the group, a feller don't soak a lady. Belletti held speeches in the park, telling fellow Newsies and gathered crowds alike, I'm trying to figure how 10 cents on 100 papers can mean more to a millionaire than it does to newsboys, and I can't see it. From then on, more patrons took up the Newsies' cause. The papers started to panic, and the public thought it was funny that rich men like Pulitzer and Hearst were hemorrhaging money due to a bunch of poor street kids. And sure, the strike had hurt the papers, but the kids weren't faring well either. Within a week, word leaked that the papers had bought Belletti and Simons. When both began wearing nicer clothes, the two were kicked out of the union and narrowly escaped a beating. After two weeks, Pulitzer and Hearst agreed to buy back any unsold newspapers each day. Thinking they'd been offered a solid deal, the children, some of them just seven years old, went back to work. Sadly, labor laws barely existed at the turn of the century, and it would take more than child labor to change them. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. By 1900, the American dream was more of a nightmare for New York City sweatshop employees. Factory workers earned barely enough to scrape by. The housing developments where they lived were filthy and unsafe. 
Without proper services or regulation, garbage lined the streets. Parents couldn't afford decent food, much less childcare, and children often roamed the streets unattended. Kept at or below poverty levels, frustrated workers began to clash with city officials and the corruption at Tammany Hall. Women wanted voting rights, workers wanted better pay and conditions. Wealthy business owners rewarded politicians for preventing or sidelining new laws aimed at protecting workers. Safer conditions and higher pay affected their bottom line, after all. Tammany Hall politicians kept the tensions at bay, occasionally doing local communities some small favor, maybe a cleaner park or a half-hearted attempt at trash pickup. Every day, workers piled into the sweatshops, often working from 5 in the morning until 9 at night. 100-hour work weeks were not uncommon. Tuberculosis spread quickly in overcrowded factories and poorly ventilated sweatshops. In July of 1909, 200 garment workers at Rosen Brothers shirtwaist manufacturing shop walked out, demanding a 20% pay increase. The shirts, women's blouses that buttoned up the front, had become all the rage, and employees hoped the huge demand would prompt management to give them a decent wage. Management refused to negotiate, hiring strike breakers to attack the picket lines. If the picketers fought back, Tammany officials ordered the police force to arrest them or beat them back. The clothing company wasn't the first or the last to use the technique, but this time the workers didn't back down. The strike went on for a month before the company relented and gave their employees a raise. Elsewhere in the city, women and teen girls working in a necktie shop had it rougher. Being female, they were paid a pittance compared to their male counterparts. Their pay was so small that no matter how many hours they worked, they couldn't afford to live anywhere except in the attics, cellars, and small rooms that the company provided. Despite the outcry for equal rights, the businesses and politicians ignored them. When the women went on strike, the company felt certain that losing both their pay and their homes would have them back to work in no time. But after weeks of lost profits, the necktie company relented. While gender equality had a long way to go, the women and girls were given a raise. The early 1900s were a time of change, though. The women's and workers' rights advocate Clara Lemlich worked tirelessly as a union organizer. Her small five-foot frame allowed her to move from shop to shop mostly unnoticed. The long hours, minuscule pay, and unsafe working conditions were only a part of what angered her. Women and girls were expected to work with salacious foremen, managers who changed clocks, and supervisors who followed them to the bathroom and subjected the women to daily searches of their purses and other belongings. To businesses, Clara was a threat that had to be dealt with. It's unclear which company or companies hired Charles Rose and his gang of men to stalk Clara, but their goal was clear. Make sure Clara knew who she was up against in the most brutal way possible. On September 10th of 1909, they followed her through the streets of New York's Lower East Side until they were away from public view. She recognized Charles and a few of the other men as strikebreakers and understood what was about to happen. Two days later, she returned to the picket line with broken ribs and her face battered. The story of her brutal attack served to tell the others what the men and those who'd hired them would sink to. Max Blank and Isaac Harris, who owned the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, watched the strikes but paid little attention. 
So far, they had managed to keep their employees in line, though not because they treated them much better. The company was the largest manufacturer of shirtwaist blouses, popular with the poorest career woman to the richest of socialites. The men felt their operation would go unscathed. The opposite was true. Their company was about to make some major changes when it came to employee welfare. Blank and Harris were Jewish immigrants from Russia, where they had endured horrific conditions in sweatshops themselves. Despite this, neither man seemed particularly bothered that they had become perpetrators of the same type of treatment that they had fled from. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of a building on Washington Place. The average workday began at 8 a.m. sharp. The young girls and women talked about the latest play or fashions as they jostled their way to the freight elevators. There were stairwells, but those remained locked and reserved for the management, mostly men, like owners Blank and Harris and factory manager Samuel Bernstein. The passenger elevators were also locked and manned by operators. Only management and customers were permitted to use them. On March 25th of 1911, the women and girls, some making as little as $7 a week, hurried to their stations as they did every day. There were quotas to be met. With more women in the workforce, demand for the simple button-up blouses meant the company expected their employees to work faster. By the end of the day, garments piled up at the buttonhole machine. Business was good. Blank and Harris claimed they were the shirtwaist kings. Their company bundled, boxed, and shipped over 2,000 garments a day, every day. The men raked in the money. And all that wealth went to their heads. To them, the workers didn't have a lot to complain about. 600 employees were spread out over three floors, after all, and they had the latest sewing machines. And while they were expected to work 13-hour days, seven days a week, the shifts were shorter than at some other companies. With no breaks except a half-hour lunch, smokers often took drags on their cigarettes between cutting fabric, then tossed the butts into nearby trash cans. Despite the flammable material surrounding them, no one called them on it. At 4.30 p.m. that day, a foreman began rounds to distribute the weekly pay envelopes, starting on the 10th floor. Some of the young girls talked about a weekend date with a new beau. Uh, some older women planned a nice dinner at home. One girl started to sing a popular song. Every little movement has a meaning all its own. Then a scream echoed from one of the floors below. Like the others, Bernstein turned to look out the 10th floor window. Smoke billowed past them. One of the women shouted that a fire had broken out on the 8th floor, a wide open space full of flammable cotton and tissue paper. Every employee immediately understood the danger. On the eighth floor, one of the fabric cutters grabbed a fire bucket to douse the flames, though one bucket was hardly effective against the rapidly spreading fire. The 180 workers on the floor headed for the nearest stairwells in an attempt to force the doors open. Realizing the fire was spreading fast and the stairs were blocked, others climbed out onto the balcony and window ledges. On the 10th floor, Bernstein gathered a few of the other men and began hooking up the emergency fire hose. When they turned on the valve, they discovered there was no water pressure. To Bernstein's horror, one of the workers' clothes caught fire, engulfing him in flames. Employees crushed themselves against the door, screaming for help. 
When someone on the other side finally opened one of the doors, Bernstein had to rescue a woman who'd fallen from being trampled. One of the seamstresses, Dinah, tried calling the ninth floor. Bernstein pulled her away and toward the staircase. They were met with a wall of people trying to shove their way down the stairs. If he and Dinah joined them, they'd meet a fiery death. Somehow, he had to convince as many people as he could that their only chance of survival meant heading up to the roof of the burning building. Outside the building, spectators began to gather. Employees who had found their way to the rickety fire escape crawled down to an open window on another floor. Finding the stairwells locked there as well, some of them reappeared moments later, while some did not. More workers found their way onto the fire escape. The spectators watched in horror as the flimsy metal swayed and creaked, finally buckling under the weight, spilling 20 people to their death. On one of the floors, 24-year-old Yetta Lubitz began to cry when she realized the stairwells were locked. A manager promptly reprimanded her. She paused, but only for a second, deciding that if she were about to die, she'd act any way she wanted. She followed other girls who were hopping from table to table, dodging the fire. The flames were everywhere, and their hair began to smolder. Coughing from inhaling smoke and ash, Yetta found her way to the staircase, where Bernstein ushered her up the stairs. Owner Isaac Harris had been on the phone placing orders when flames shot out of the 10th floor elevator shaft. Having a key to the passenger elevator, he quickly ushered 70 other employees past the fire and crammed as many of them as would fit into the elevator car, sending it to the rooftop and back. He had time to rescue a second load of people, but not a third. When the elevator rails buckled from the heat, Harris and the remaining employees hurried for the stairwell and headed to the roof. Everyone covered their faces as best they could and climbed the dark stairwell filled with smoke. They reached the rooftop and had another choice to make. The fire engine sirens rang in the distance, but the fire wouldn't wait. They had to get off the building before the roof collapsed. The south and east sides of the building had nothing but a 130-foot drop. Two taller buildings sat on the north and west sides. Survival meant reaching one of them. Below, Engine Company 72 barreled down Broadway. Flames shot out of the eighth-floor windows. The firefighters began hooking up hoses to the closest fire hydrants as people began to crawl out onto the ledges above them. Captain Howard Rush realized what was about to happen. He ordered his men to set up life nets to catch the jumpers. He had little hope the nets would work to save them from such a fall, but he had to try. A man on a ledge kissed a woman, and the two clasped hands and jumped to their deaths. Others followed. A one woman's dress caught momentarily on a steel sign. When her burning clothes gave way, she fell to the sidewalk below. Those trapped on the roof were aware of the fire trucks. They also knew they couldn't wait for firemen to reach them, nor would they survive jumping. Desperate, Harris took a running leap and managed to grab hold of one of the taller building's ledges. He pulled himself up and over and summoned help. A janitor supplied him with a ladder, and the two men lowered it to the roof, and the employees stranded there. 
A professor in the second building also found two painter's ladders, and though the ladders were too short to bridge the buildings, his students lowered them and held on, while Bernstein hoisted people up to reach the bottom rungs, until he was the last on the rooftop. It was now or never. The flames had reached the roof, threatening to cave in at any moment. The students called out to Bernstein, encouraging him to make a leap for it. He took several steps back to get a running start. He ran and jumped, managing to just barely grab the last rung on the ladder. When he reached the safety of the other rooftop, he and the others had a sobering view. Their co-workers, who hadn't made it to the roof with them, were leaping from the ledges. Sixty-two people jumped to their deaths that day. Had the stairwells and elevators been unlocked, evacuation would have taken barely a few minutes. Instead, approximately 146 people died. The papers reported on the cause and how long it had taken firefighters to put out the blaze. All that remained then was figuring out who was at fault. The answer should have been easy enough. After the investigation, Blank and Harris were indicted on charges of first- and second-degree manslaughter in mid-April. The men hired the best lawyer money could buy for their joint trial, which began on December 4th of 1911. By all accounts, attorney Max Stoyer had the reputation of a shark. Getting his clients off on all charges required that he destroy all survivors' credibility as witnesses. He ruthlessly questioned each one repeatedly. When one woman didn't waver in her responses, he said that her calm demeanor and repeated insistence indicated she had rehearsed her answers instead of speaking from memory. And Stoyer questioned the defense's argument that the doors had been maliciously locked during working hours to trap workers inside. Sure, conditions at the factory were poor. The building suffered from faulty ventilation and outdated heating and cooling systems, as well as dimly lit stairwells. Paper and fabric clippings littered the floor. Chemicals were haphazardly stored. Patterns hung from the ceilings. Inadequate fire buckets and few restrooms to provide running water made the factory high risk. But Stoyer claimed that the mostly steel and iron building had been advertised as fireproof. In short, Stoyer claimed that his clients were not negligent. Sadly, the jury agreed and acquitted both men of all charges. That didn't stop the civil lawsuits, though. Families remained understandably angry. While the men may not have been at fault for starting the fire, they had insisted that the stairwells and elevators be locked and had allowed working conditions that were ripe for such a fire. Stoyer represented the men in the civil lawsuits as well. One by one, he tore down the victim's credibility. In the end, neither man paid out a single penny to the survivors or their families. The following year, the 23 litigants managed to get the company's insurance to pay, just $75 per claim. Later, in 1913, Blank found himself in trouble once more for locking doors in his Fifth Avenue factory. This time, the judge had to do something, so he fined Blank $20, and then apologized for having to punish him. While this piece of American history is bleak, changes did come from such an avoidable tragedy. 
Investigations into the Triangle Shirtwaist Company led the New York State Legislature to create a Factory Investigating Commission. The commission looked into conditions at factories throughout the city. They frequently tangled with Tammany Hall officials, yet still managed to put 64 new labor rights laws into place. The new laws mandated that building access not be limited, and that there be adequate fireproofing and fire extinguishers. It also called for the installation of fire alarms and sprinkler systems. As for the conditions, workers were to be given eating facilities separate from their desks or work areas, and factories were to provide proper lavatories with running water. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Workers aren't the only ones who have found themselves in danger due to unsafe workplace conditions. In March of 1979, Americans flocked to theaters to see the latest blockbuster disaster movie. In The China Syndrome, a journalist discovers a cover-up on safety issues at a nuclear power plant. Though the movie became a box office hit, many people found the premise a little unrealistic. They couldn't have been more wrong. On a sandbar in the Susquehanna River, just 10 miles from Pennsylvania's capital of Harrisburg, stood Three Mile Island, a state-of-the-art nuclear power plant. In 1978, the four-year-old plant had a second reactor added to ramp up affordable and reliable power during the energy crisis. Nuclear power plants use the controlled fission of uranium to produce controlled heat, which is used to turn water into steam, which drives turbines that generate electricity. The problem started at 4 in the morning on March 28, 1979, when a minor malfunction caused temperatures to rise in the Unit 2 reactor. It automatically shut down, and a tiny pressure valve opened to release an excess of cooling water in the form of steam, but then the valve failed to close. There was no sensor in place to report this failure, so no one noticed that too much cooling water was draining out through the valve. Residual heat from the fission process continued to heat the core. By early morning, the temperature reached 4,000 degrees, just a thousand shy of a meltdown. If a meltdown occurred, radiation would drift across the countryside, exposing the population to radiation poisoning. Another automatic system was pushing in replacement coolant water, but the stuck valve was sending it into the pressurizer, which you do not want to fill up with water. The workers noticed, and in a panic, shut down the emergency water system. While they scrambled to understand what had happened, the contaminated water released radioactive gases into the plant. While not life-threatening, the levels were dangerous, and without a cooling mechanism, the core continued to heat. At 6.56 a.m., the plant supervisor declared a site area emergency. A half hour later, station manager Gary Miller announced a general emergency. By 8 a.m., news of the accident spread outside the plant. Independent investigators found slightly elevated levels of radiation from the leaking water. The plant's parent company, Metropolitan Edison, downplayed the damage, insisting that no radiation had been detected off the plant grounds. Governor Dick Thornburg had a difficult decision. Should he believe the plant manager, which would save a lot of trouble, or the investigators, and order an evacuation? Considering the nature of the accident, he briefed the White House. 
Confusing the situation further, it was unclear who had the authority to declare an evacuation. The plant operators still had no answers and were undecided on how much information the public should know. State officials turned to the National Regulatory Commission. NRC inspectors investigated, noting that the accident was cause for concern, but not particularly alarming. There was another problem, though. The NRC had difficulty gathering accurate information. By 8 p.m., plant operators finally realized that shutting down the water had been a mistake. After restarting the pumps, core temperatures began to drop, though half the core was already molten. They'd narrowly missed a complete meltdown by about an hour. The trouble wasn't over yet, though. On March 30th, operators discovered a highly flammable bubble of hydrogen gas within the reactor building. Back on the 28th, a reaction between exposed zircaloy tubes and superheated water had created hydrogen gas. The NRC worried that the bubble had the potential to cause a meltdown or even a giant explosion. They just weren't sure. The plant released a public statement asking residents to stay inside. Governor Thornburg advised that pregnant women and all children within a five-mile radius evacuate until further notice. Though the evacuation was voluntary, people panicked. More than 100,000 people fled the area. It took two weeks before many returned. In early April, President Jimmy Carter arrived at the plant. Operators assured him that the hydrogen bubble had been bled away from the system and no longer posed a problem. In the aftermath, investigators looked into emissions that had been released and how the accident had affected workers at the plant and nearby residents. They concluded that while workers had been exposed to unhealthy levels of radiation, no one outside of the plant seemed to have been affected. Cleanup took 14 years and cost more than a billion dollars. The accident spurred massive changes in nuclear regulation, making other plants greatly safer than Three Mile Island. In 2019, the plant shut down for good. The destroyed Unit 2 is sealed and slated to be dismantled in 2041. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.